listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome to another edition of the Prologue on America's Web Radio. This is a weekly program bringing you introductions to writers and books you may not be familiar with. My name is Doug Dahlgren. I'll be your host for this next hour. I'm an author myself. I have eight fiction novels that are available. They're action thrillers, some that you just might enjoy. They're available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all the online sites, or you can visit my website, www.dougdahlgren.com. Now, we call this show The Prologue because that's just what it is, an introduction. And while those introductions are mainly to writers, we love to bring you interesting people with just a good story to tell from other fields and other endeavors as well. Now, if you don't have a pen or a pencil handy, I want you to go get one and be ready, okay? Have something to write on. Throughout this program, we're going to be offering you information that you just might want to make note of. Like this, for instance. If you or someone that you know has a book or that interesting story that needs to be told, please reach out to me through email, and there's two ways you can do that. There's Doug at AmericasWebRadio.com or Doug at DougDahlgren.com. I'd love to speak with you about yourself or your friend and schedule you for an appearance on a future program. Now, our guest here in the studio this hour brings us a memoir of his time as a Marine forward observer in the second decade of the Vietnam War, very early in that second decade. The subject matter is harsh, and the story is told with a sense of realism one only gets from experience. Our author is Franklin Cox, and we'll be speaking with him in just a minute. But please allow me to recognize some very important listeners that we're very proud that we have here on the Prologue and on America's Web Radio. Our men and women in the armed forces of the United States, stationed around the globe, our internet podcast and broadcasting make it possible for them to listen wherever they are as they execute their duties of keeping us safe back here at home. Now that freedom that we have paid for by them is not free. They buy and pay for it every day with the actions that they take and being in harm's way for us. The second group that I want to recognize, and this is this is a particularly poignant in this time period. I don't like dating the shows, but our police, fire, and rescue personnel are under fire in this country today, and uh, frankly, that's got to stop, folks. These people represent us. They are there for us. If we do not have them, we have anarchy. So uh, thank them when you see them. Defend them if they need defending. But we thank those police, fire, and rescue people who, like a Marine, you can recognize them because they rush to the gunfire or to whatever the danger might be. So we thank each and every one of you for listening, and we thank you for being listeners to America's Web Radio. Now, our guest today served on active duty in the United States Marines from August of 1964 to August of 1967. As they proudly say, once a Marine, always a Marine, so we welcome him today as just that. His memoir of those days as a forward observer in Vietnam is a book he calls Lullabies for Lieutenants. It is my belief that the best prologue I could offer you for this book is to simply bring Franklin Cox on and let him tell us about his experience and the writing of this award-winning book. 
Mr. Cox, I want to thank you for being here. Welcome to the prologue. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Now, your subtitle for this book is A Memoir of a Forward Observer in Vietnam, 1965-1966. What is the job of a Marine forward observer? A forward observer uh, is... um, Attached normally to an infantry unit, and normally he is uh, from an artillery unit attached to the infantry unit. And his job uh, uh, is to go out with the uh, infantry, uh, in my case, an infantry rifle company or a platoon. Uh, and I'll just give it from a personal point of view uh, and experience. Um, if we, we would make contact with the enemy, uh, it was my job to to locate the enemy, to move to a position to ascertain their exact locations, uh, to describe the enemy over the radio uh, to the artillery unit in the rear, to give the location by coordinates, to give an azimuth, which would let the uh, artillery uh, unit in the rear plot the target and the um, and the way the rounds will be delivered, uh, and uh, and I will give the commands to uh, fire the fire missions, uh, which are usually very close in Vietnam because the enemy was very close. Uh, and once the spotting rounds hit, I would adjust the shells accordingly uh, to the left or the right or forward or back uh, to put them on the target on the enemy, which was trying to kill my Marines. 1965... Uh, was a very critical point in the Vietnam War. Those uh, who are historians will recall that the conflict had been going on for the better part of a decade at that point, but there was a realization in 1965 that the South Vietnamese were losing to the communist-backed North Viet Cong. Uh, The government back then was escalating everything. You went in in August of 64. You were in your training to do your job during the year 1965. Do you feel that your training was sped up in any way? Do you, do you think that maybe you were hurried through in getting ready to go to fill the need in Vietnam? Um, not really. Um, in August of 64, I reported to uh, the basic school, which is where all new second lieutenants go uh, in the Marine Corps to be to be taught how to lead Marines. And it's a, an extensive, long, six-month course that's pretty much never changes. Um, uh, I remember uh, at one time um, we did have uh, some uh, – some Marine officers who taught classes on patrolling that had returned from Vietnam. But uh, after after um, we graduated from the basic school, uh, 32 of my class of over 200 uh, were assigned to be artillery officers, uh, and we had an artillery school at Quantico right there, which was three weeks. Uh, and this was the only time in the history of the Marine Corps uh, not because we were being sped up. It was just a mistake that the Marine Corps made at the time. That We were, we were not sent to Fort Sill to learn all the nuances of artillery. Instead, we uh, had this piecemeal course at Quantico, and then we were uh, go to, and then, uh, in my case, I went straight to the 3rd Marine Division in Okinawa and was assigned to the uh, 2nd Battalion, 12th Marines, Echo Battery. So even with the pressure of what was going on, the Marines do it right. 
they make sure you're ready before you went over. Well, that's true. Uh, and uh, and uh, one way that uh, I could I could show you how important the basic school is 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 the case of one of the uh, Ford Reservers that I served with in Vietnam is a man named Barney Barnum. Uh, and um, Barney uh, showed up uh, at our battery uh, in November of 1965. We were now in Vietnam. And I was in the executive officer pit, which is where the commands are given to the cannons to fire artillery in support of the Marines. I was uh, at the acting CXO that day, and I was giving the commands. And this uh, new lieutenant I'd never seen before pops his head into the tent. Uh, and then he backed away when he saw I was given the commands. He introduced himself to me uh, right afterwards. He was very polite. Well, his name was Barney Barnum, and he was only there for for like six to eight weeks to learn what was going on there so he could take that information back uh, at the at, at the battery level, the battalion level, and the regimental level and take that information back, what he'd learned to teach his unit, and which was where the whole, uh, a lot of Marines were based in Hawaii. So um, a week later, Barney... Um, um, was assigned to be a forward observer uh, for an operation that just cranked up for Hotel Company 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines. The operation was Harvest Moon, a brutal operation. Long story short, um, Barney uh, Barney's company was trapped in a terrible ambush. The company commander was killed. Barney took over, took command of the company, said, follow me, stood on a hill when the helicopters wouldn't come in and said, if I can stand here, you can pull my wounded Marines out. Anyway, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, and he saved his rifle company that day, and he knew what to do because he had been trained that in the basic school. Your experiences, and we want to go over some more of those in, in just a bit, but your experiences just just lead to great storytelling, and that's what this book is. But it was some 45 years from the time that you actually lived through all this until you decided to write this book. Why so long? Well, um, I got back from Vietnam uh, and got out of the Marine Corps in 67, and um I sat down and I grabbed a legal pad and I wrote down a series of items that I thought could each one be a chapter in a book someday, Um, an event, a person, something that had happened during my tour and deployment. Uh, At that time, I decided uh, the Vietnam War was unpopular. I was out. I was not going to be a career officer. It was time to get on with my life. So since I had to get a life, uh, I just took Vietnam and took it right out of my perspective and shoved it aside and and locked its uh, contents deep into my subconscious. Um, years later, uh, years later, my mother, probably eight years ago, gave me a bundle of 60 letters I'd written her home from Vietnam. While I started reading those letters, the whole experience came back. At the same time, uh, I grabbed that list, that short that, that two to three pages of one-line items that were subjects for possible uh, care, uh, chapters or parts of care, chapters in a book. Um, I took that information and I isolated a bunch of pictures. I'd taken hundreds of pictures uh, with my uh, Pentax camera when I had the opportunity out on operations as a forward observer. And I assembled all that data and 
started putting it together, and that's when I started writing the book. And so that happened 45 years later. But um, in order to make sure I was factual in every item, uh, I got all the command chronologies from the official Marine Corps records for each day I was there uh, from, uh, from the artillery unit and the infantry unit I was attached to to make sure all my facts were right. The title is somewhat unexpected. Lullabies for Lieutenant does not sound like a memoir or a war journal. Is there a story behind that title? How did you come up with that? Well, I'd finished, I'd almost finished writing the book, and I said, well, it needs a title. And I remember I was laying back on my sofa one afternoon, uh, and I started thinking about my friends that I served with that were forward observers with me, and they'd, they'd all been through a lot. Uh, and, um, and a lullaby, of course, is a, is a sweet, soothing song sung to usually an, uh, an infant or a baby to make them relax. Uh, and, um, and so I said, well, you know, these stories, they're all standalone stories. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'm just gonna call them lullabies, even though they're not the kind of lullabies a grandmother might read to her grandchild. Nonetheless, um, I'm gonna call it lullabies for, um, for lieutenants, um, in honor of the guys I served with. Lullabies for Lieutenants, a memoir of a Marine Forward Observer in Vietnam, 1965-1966, by Franklin Cox. Sir, tell us where folks can find out more about you and your book. Well, um, I've got an, uh, an Amazon author page, if you go to Amazon, um, and uh, my books are on Amazon, and I have a website, uh, franklincox.com. Uh, I'm real active on Facebook uh, under uh, Frank Cox, uh, and um, um, the books can all be found at, um, through my website or through McFarland and Company uh, or through Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, um, or, you know, other places. All right, very good. Listen, you're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. My name's Doug Dahlgren. We're going to be back with more from Franklin Cox after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, 
and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. Again, my name is Doug Dahlgren. You're listening to the Prologue on America's Web Radio. Our guest today is Franklin Cox. He has a book, Lullabies for Lieutenants. It is a memoir of a Marine forward observer in Vietnam, 1965-1966. Frank, who is basically the audience for this book as you're getting it rolled out? Is it both men and women? Uh, Well, of course, it's obviously uh, men that are interested in the military, but it's also for women. Um, um, it's not a normal military history book. It's a book that's filled with with happiness and sadness, and it's very poignant and it's um, it's very lyrical. And uh, a lot of women love it. As a matter of fact, um, um, the review um, one of my favorite reviews. I've had many. I've had you know close to a hundred five star reviews on Amazon. Uh, and uh, the book has been received numerous awards, but I guess my favorite review ever is this little review written by a woman who was the mother of a Marine who did the same thing I did. He was a Ford observer, yet he was a Ford observer in Afghanistan just a few years ago, a young lieutenant, and here's what she said. As a mom of two Marines, it is beyond difficult for me to get them to tell me about their experiences in war. My son wrote a review for this book, and I read the book from my Kindle, my Kindle Cloud, and my iPhone, depending on where I was because I couldn't put it down. My son was reading it at the same time, except I think it took him only two days, and would comment on different chapters, deja vu, mom, deja vu, mom, etc., etc. What a gift this offer has given him and me. I truly feel that I understand now the emotions that my son felt. I am not nearly as good a writer as these other reviewers, but do appreciate excellent literature, and this is now in my top three best books ever read. So that review by a mom of a Marine um, really meant a lot to me. Another thing that meant a lot to me was um, I had to get real personal in this book later on in order to tell the truth, and a memoir has to tell the truth. So I got real personal uh, with some stories about my childhood that my mother, uh, who's a very private person, I wasn't sure how she would how she could handle it. So when the book came out, I, she didn't know this was going to be in it, how, how I referred to my childhood with some unpleasantness. Uh, and, um, and her being a private person, I was... I checked with her as she started reading it, and after a few days, uh, I figured she'd probably come to the part where where I discussed, uh, you know, our earlier life. And I looked at her and I said, "Well, have you read it?" And she looked back at me and smiled and said, "It's beautiful, son," and that made the book worth writing. 
the reviews that you mentioned and of course the words from your mom that 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 how, how can you top that but uh this book how long has it been out now frank it's been out five years now five years the review you read is one of nearly 80 that i counted this morning mm-hmm. in looking on amazon uh each ch- uh, story or each chapter and there's some 27 chapters in this book is as frank has indicated earlier they're a story unto themselves uh, chapter 7, for instance, is titled Her Majesty, and that's a rather special chapter to you. You want to tell us a little bit about Her Majesty? Sure. Um, we, um, My rifle company's task uh, was to go into a, a hornet's nest of a village called Hadong. Uh, and uh, every time the Marines, uh, we had been uh, anywhere near this village, we'd been ambushed. We'd run into numerous booby traps. We'd, uh, we'd received many casualties, and it was time once and for all to take care of this place. So there was a multi-company operation, and my company was the one that was going to do the search and destroy two-day operation, three maybe three days inside this village complex, which was large, to destroy all the hedgerows, the fighting holes, the booby traps, and to take care of any enemy if they remained after we landed. So all the villagers, hundreds of them, were going to be shepherded away by helicopters to a safe camp during these days. All of a sudden, this woman came up to me, this old woman wearing um, just a peasant garb, and she was kicking the dirt up, and for some reason she came to me and said, I'm not leaving. She told me this through our interpreter. I don't know why she came to me, and she kept telling me her story, uh, and somehow I was able to to understand what she was saying. And she, her, she said, my um, my son was killed, uh, my f- f- for the for my people. Uh, my husband is buried over there, uh, killed by the Japanese. Um, we've it's one after another of the people that come here. I'm not leaving. I've never left this village. There's my husband's headstone. Uh, and uh, so I said, sure. So I went to the captain. I said, let her stay. So he said, well, it's your responsibility. So uh, she took me by the hand to her home, which was right there in the middle of the village. And it was a nice front yard. And I sent word to the captain, that's where we should put up our command post. She took me inside and gave me some bula based soup she'd cooked. Um, she showed me during the course of our time there uh, the fighting holes, the, the fighting slits and bunkers that were underneath her house that were used to shoot at Marines and previous enemy. And she warned me to be safe. And we created um, an, an incredible relationship in that time. Uh, and, um, and it was a love story. It's a true love story. Uh, she was 90 years old. She held nine fingers up when we, when we asked her how old she was. So when we finally left, I remember uh, as uh, being the captain and our radio operators were the last Marines out of 150 to leave that village uh, the, uh, two days later. And as my helicopter spiraled out towards the sky, I looked down and uh, I was looking for Lynn. Her, her name is L-I-N-H, Lynn, which um, means gentle spirit in Vietnamese. Uh, and as I looked down, all I could see was the banyan trees, but she still stays with me to this day. We've got a section that uh, Frank wants to read to us, but I think we're going to save that to the next point here for time. Um, the research that you did for this particular book, um, 
what all did you research besides your own memories, the letters that you had from your mom, the notes that you had made? What other types of research did you do in getting this material together? Well, I'll start with what are called command chronicles. And every day for every battalion, uh, a command chronicle is created, which consists of of what happened from um, from S1, which is logistics, from S2, which is intelligence, from S3, which is operations, um, and uh, and um, for example, the operations they show every situation report that's sent in, every. Um, operation order that's created if one's created that day after every situation report by every radio man out in the field every action after every action after report so for each day i went through and combed through uh, all those uh, all those documents uh, for each day of my tour for the second battalion ninth marines which was the infantry company i was attached to and for the second battalion 12th marines which was my artillery battalion and from there uh for example i learned how many rounds were shot uh in support of my uh, rifle company for each fire mission i shot and that's how i came to find out that on the night of march the 18th when there was an incredible battle we were in i called in over 1500 rounds of artillery in support of my rifle company uh that long uh day night and next morning my goodness you've already mentioned memoirs and books of this nature have to be truthful they have to be accurate how did you verify all the facts that you put in this book well, the verifications, I mean, the the words, the, the facts spoke for themselves when it was official Marine Corps records, uh, which have been classified until, um, uh, for you know, for decades. Uh, uh, of course, uh, you know, um, all the letters I wrote home, um, I tried to tell the truth to my mom. A good Boy Scout doesn't lie to his mom, neither does the Marine. Uh, the pictures didn't lie, and the pictures brought all the visual uh, images of smoke and fire and, um, and and the life of the peasants and the giant green fields and the and the blue skies and the uh, the, the the beautiful tapestry of that country uh, and uh, so it all helped me tell the story. Uh, all the pictures, all the letters I wrote, um, uh, many books I've read, which which are, 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 uh, I gave credit to um, in my ident- in my index. Uh, so, you know, it's true. I want to ask you real quick, uh, you told us earlier about what the role of a forward observer was. You honor several of your compatriots, uh, folks that did the job you did in this book. And I want to list the names. Uh, we don't have time really to go into everything that these brave men did. But folks like Barney Barnum, Jack Swallows, Robert Hamill, David Gardner, James Reardon, how many of these men are still around, how still with us today, and are they aware of this book you've written? Somehow, um, those five men and me, there were six of us that were forward observers out of Echo Battery, 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines during my tour. We all made it through. Uh, nobody was killed. Uh, we're all alive today. We're all best friends. We communicate weekly at least via email. Um, Barney Barnum, I had him come to town uh, um, um, uh, to speak to um, 
uh, the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association's memorial uh, a couple of years ago. And as Barney got off the, uh, came up the escalator at the Atlanta airport, uh, he came to me and he said, and I met him and he said, uh, do we have time to go to the USO? And I said, sure. So, we walk up to the USO and Barney hands me this packet and he pull this his pouch and he pulls out of it the Medal of Honor with the blue ribbon which he ties around his neck. He walks into the USO, he walks up to every airman, marine, sailor, or army guy he could see. All these young nineteen twenty Marines either heading to Afghan Afghanistan or coming back, uh, and he thanked them for their service, each one and of course, some of them, their eyes got bigger than saucers, uh, but it was just an example of what they do. So, yeah, that's what Barney, that's what Barney did. Folks, the book is Lullabies for Lieutenants. The author is Franklin Cox. We're going to be back with more after these messages. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Are your health insurance premiums going up? You are not alone. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org to understand why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. This is Grace Marie Turner, President of the Galen Institute. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back. My name is Doug Dahlgren. We're here this morning with Franklin Cox. He's brought us his book, a memoir, Lullabies for Lieutenants. And as we talked about earlier here, Frank, each chapter in this book is a story unto itself. Uh, chapter four is titled Ambush. And as part of the telling, uh, you write what you say is a stream of consciousness. Uh, we want you to read a part of that, if you would, for our listeners. Uh, are you ready to do that? Yeah, um, I'll uh, um, I'll let the readers know when the stream of consciousness um, um, part is getting ready to come up. But I'll I'll go ahead and read that uh, that, that right. part of let that me, chapter let now. Let me set you up here so they'll know, folks. This is Franklin Cox. He is reading from his book, Lullabies for Lieutenants. Uh, hopefully the stories in my book help in a small way to allow the American public to understand the Marine experience in the Vietnam War better. Um, 
we knew when we were ra- when we raised our right hand to become a marine, we could be signing our own death warrant because marines are always in the hunt. We joined as a Confederate memorial in Arlington National Cemetery tells us, not for fame or reward, not for place or for rank, but in simple obedience to duty. There is a distinct command I remember hearing over and over going through Officer Candidate School and the basic school at Quantico. It was the usual solution to a field problem. It rang out, two up, one back, high diddle diddle, up the middle. It is the age-old mantra that Marines in combat have always repeated as they race to the sounds of the enemy's guns. It was the old way of fighting, I decided. Surely in this more sophisticated, kinder, gentler world, there will be no frontal assaults. I found out in Vietnam it is the basis of our ethos. We attack. The first time I experienced it, I was shocked. In February 66, I was the artillery forward observer for Foxtrot Company, 9th Marine Regiment, on one of my first search and destroy operations. We had just taken a break inside the outer tree line of a village we had just swept through. It had been a very quiet, terribly hot day about 10 miles south of the Da Nang Air Base. After a few minutes, the platoon leader gave the order to move out and cross the 70-yard open field between us and our next objective, a heavily wooded tree line on the other side of the field. Fifteen men in black peasant dress with chicum hand grenades lay abreast, motionless and undetectable, facing the tree line across the short field in front of them with forefingers firmly placed on their triggers, waiting for the unsuspecting U.S. Marines to emerge openly through the tree line and close towards them. The Viet Cong fighters each carried two days' worth of rice in bags tied to their backs, a small amount of water, and 20 to 30 rounds of ammunition for their carbines and AK-47s. They had carefully slashed the thick yellow-green bamboo stalks and the undulating five-foot-tall razor-sharp elephant grass just in front of them to allow fields of fire for their weapons. They could not be seen from across the field. The afternoon sunshine came from behind them and illuminated the brilliant green field of vegetables, spicy peppers, fat pulpy peas, and between them and the jungle cluster of darker green trees across the far edge of the field. Clouds flew between the sun and the field and made the landscape dance. The Viet Cong soldiers had rehearsed the ambush operation during the morning, correctly estimating the very hour the Marine Patrol would arrive at the site. The small yellow men were patient feeling assured the moth would fly into the flame. Sweat truckled from the soldiers' foreheads and temples covered by green pith helmets onto their forearms supporting their rifles, then fell drop by drop from their wrists into the soil supporting their elbows. They paid no attention to the sweat or other discomforts, nor did they speak or move for several hours. They would not fire until the first echelons of Marines had crossed most of the field toward them. I was just behind the platoon leader with the third squad as we passed the last hedgerow and entered into the open field. The first squad was halfway across the field on line, followed by the second squad some 20 yards behind. Suddenly, the VC sprang their surprise. Several automatic weapons joined by small arms erupted from the far tree line and broke the monotony of the hot afternoon. Bullets whizzed 
by us, slapping into the tree line just behind us. The sudden noise from their weapons was deafening. A surge of adrenaline instant took away the technicolor. Everything was now starkly black and white and scary. Scores of bullets were hosed at us. The singing sound they made soaring through the air was like that of swarms of angry, vengeful hornets on a high-speed mission. Everyone instantly hit the ground, trying to crawl under the incoming fire. Tree limbs snapped above and behind us, and for several seconds, time was suspended. I'd never been shot at like that before. So unexpectedly, the fire delivered so closely, the total surprise shocking my soul. On the ground for a, for a few seconds, I wondered almost in denial what that violent noise was. Then almost instantly, I was on my elbows, checking my map once more to pinpoint the coordinates of the enemy shooters to call in artillery. Instinctively, the first squad sprinted into the tree line, charging the fire. Seconds later, the second squad also friendly assaulted the enemy position. I jumped up and ran to catch up with the command group and the third squad crossing the field. I didn't want to be the last one left back there all alone. Who knew what might be back there by now? At this point in my book, I deliver a stream of consciousness with no punctuation to describe the moment. It's all happening too fast. I can't quite get it together. How can I read my map when I'm running at bullets passing me? And why is it my radio operator and I are among the last to get across this field with a damn draw straight across the center of it? Makes it hard to run fast going up the slope. I can hear noises of rifles firing quick bursts and soft sounds of boots pounding the wet green ground and metallic sounds of magazines with live rounds rattling and slapping noises of packs and equipment bouncing on Marines on the move, slap, 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 jostle, jostle, run, run, run. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. That's the end of the um, stream of consciousness. Miraculously, not one Marine was hit. Then the enemy split before I could get artillery fire approved. Folks, you have been listening to First Lieutenant Franklin Cox, United States Marine Corps, retired. Um... I think you very well described what you mean by the stream of consciousness. It may sound to uneducated folks like just random thoughts running through one's mind, but in a situation that you were describing, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to assess everything going on around you, and uh, if you don't, you're dead. It's just that simple. Uh, very very dramatic, very powerful reading. We thank you. Listen, in the, in the same chapter, again, Chapter 4, there's a photograph that appears that was taken by Sergeant Bob Bowen. It shows a Marine sitting in the, in the jungle taking a breather while on patrol. That particular picture appeared some one year later, July of 66, in Leatherneck Magazine. Tell us, who was that Marine? Um, Bob Bowen... Um uh, was a combat correspondent that uh, had that had was with my um, that was assigned to um, be with us on an operation and a, and a search and destroy operation with my my rifle uh, company on a couple of uh, missions uh, and on one mission um, um, he took a picture of me uh, unbeknownst to me I didn't know he took it uh, and I was just sort of sort of leaning back against the uh, some bushes and off a trail, and the, the sort of a, a 
the picture stirred emotions in people, and he uh, it was titled "Waiting," uh, and um, I, di- I didn't know about that picture. Uh, the, uh, it appeared in Leatherneck, but I didn't know that. Uh, and it was sent to me by a friend, and since then I've become friends with Bowen, who's an award-winning Marine combat correspondent. And as a matter of fact, a year later, on the cover. For the Christmas cover of Vietnam magazine, an artist had taken that picture of me and transposed it, and next to it was a picture, uh, a car, an animation of a Marine, uh, rather than having a rifle in his hand like I had, uh, wrapped around my magazine of my M14 rifle. Uh, his, his animated Marine at Christmas had a Christmas card in his hand. So, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a treasure, that picture in my memory. I would think so, absolutely. Again, every chapter in this book is a unique story. There's a chapter that's titled, A Captain of Marines. It tells about a particular colonel visiting the base camp Foxtrot 29. The captain in this story was very well admired and respected by his men. Would you like to talk a little bit about Captain Carl Reckwell? Well, Captain Rockwell was the rifle company commander uh, of Foxtrot Company, uh, which I was attached to. We developed a a great relationship. He gave me pretty much a free reign. Uh, As soon as we made contact with the enemy, uh, I didn't have to go to him. I would just automatically uh, start preparing and processing my fire missions because time's of the essence in those situations. Um, he also gave me permission to create a pre-planned fire so that we could immediately call them in uh, if we needed it rather than going through uh, the incessant long delays that happened for fire missions. He protected his Marines. Uh, he, um, 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 They loved him so much that um, when they were out in the jungle, they knew he was safeguarding them as much as he could and so um, they performed their their uh, their their duties as Marines in combat um, to the nth degree um, towards the end um, right after um, uh, my tour uh, I was replaced uh, by another lieutenant uh, and uh, uh, and Foxtrot Company just a few weeks after I'd left were on a were were on a search and destroy operation in the same area that we operated in most of the time. This horrible, horrible killing field south of Da Nang, uh, and Captain Reckwell's company uh, uh, entered into a minefield. Captain Reckwell lost both of his legs. He lived, uh, and um, I saw a picture of him. Uh, like two years later, uh, of this young Marine captain uh, in his dress whites in a wheelchair uh, getting ready to marry, getting ready to be married. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so I, was, I, I talked with his widow um, and got her permission to use his name in this book just several years ago, and he was quite a Marine. Every chapter as a unique story and of course marines are marines and uh, you talk about what they went through on the daily battles the daily struggles folks the book is lullabies for lieutenants uh, memoir of marine forward observer in vietnam 1965-1966 the author franklin cox is here with us you can find out more about this book on Amazon.com. You can also look up Frank Cox on Facebook or look for his website, franklincox.com. We're going to be back with more from Lieutenant Cox 
after these messages. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to America's Webradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to the prologue. We're here this morning with Franklin Cox. He brings us lullabies for lieutenants. This is a memoir. Uh, Each chapter in this book, as we've said numerous times, is its standalone story. Chapter 6 tells of a vertical assault, a tactic that's quite difficult when performed in daylight, uh, much more so at night. Lieutenant, you've got some uh, passages that you wanted to read from that chapter. Is that right, sir? Yeah, I think it might make sense. And there's also uh, another example of uh, a stream of conscious, uh, uh, stream of consciousness, stream of consciousness um, style that I happen to that I happen to use, and I'll explain. I'll I'll isolate that to the reader when I read it. Very good, folks. Once again, this is retired Lieutenant Franklin Cox reading from his book, Lullabies for Lieutenants. A string of olive green trucks pulled up adjacent to my base camp south of Da Nang, forming a long line on the dusty road that before the war had been the North-South Railroad in Vietnam. My company, Foxtrot, was headed up north up the road, our muscles pointing outward, alert on the trucks. We'd been told to move out just an hour before for a mission that could last several weeks. We were to board the three-axle trucks and travel to Da Nang Air Base and board C-130 transport aircraft. Our destination was the Phu Bai Military Air Base just outside the old imperial city of Hue, up north, just below the demilitarized zone. Intelligence estimated several divisions of NVA were in the area. We were... um, Reinforcements were needed, and we were thrown into the mix. We will be given our mission and maps upon arrival. Late in the fourth afternoon there, our company commander, 
again, Captain Carl Reckwell, returned from battalion headquarters, his face in absorbed conscious concentration. You could feel his excitement. Foxtrot Company had been given a special mission. He gathered the officers and non-coms together in the large hardback GP tent that was our temporary home. Gentlemen, in an hour and a half, our company will board choppers, head west for about 15 clicks, and vertically assault the headquarters element of the 324B North Vietnamese Army Division. Nobody smoke spoke. It was almost dark now. Holy smokes, we thought. The 324B was elite, highly motivated, and formidable, an historic unit fearlessly led by the smartest of generals. This, at night, I thought, we would be big bait this time, the pick of the litter, red regulars. We are destroy the enemy headquarters element and its weapons and attempt to gather prisoners, he informed us. Our landing zone is here on this map, he pointed. The sun slid under the top of a tree line of hardwoods to our west, and the lively breeze stirred leaves that cast dancing shadows across the faces of the Marines standing in a semicircle around the captain. This is history, gang, he said. This is the first nighttime combat company-sized helicopter assault in the history of the United States Marine Corps. He turned to me and said, Frank, set up some pre-planned artillery fire missions. Dusk was closing rapidly as Foxtrot Company humped to the runway where a line of marine helicopters sat motionless, our mounts blades unmoving like giant green metal wasps half asleep. My God, I wondered, whatever lay before us. Fifteen minutes later, we were ordered to stand down. We ambled back to our company area elated. Maybe the brass at Marine Amphibious Headquarters had decided the risk-reward ratio of our mission was poor and had overridden uh, the task force's uh, uh, mission. Um, the troops sprawled on the, to the floor of the hardback tent and wriggled out of their haversacks and started cleaning rifles, laughing at each other and writing letters to friends back home. But in less than 20 minutes, the gunnery sergeant appeared. Gentlemen, mount up. We've been requested to return to the choppers. In five minutes, we're at the strip again. The evening sky was turning to slate with no moonlight. Good, I thought. They won't see us. We border the H-34 Choctaw choppers, ten of us in each one, with weapons loaded, safeties on, jaws clenched, sweat glands already working overtime. The engines whine to life, driving the blades around slowly at first, then faster and faster with increasing torque until we were up and off. Here is where I use a stream-of-consciousness effect. Boy, have I done it now. If the gooks don't zap us in the hot LZ, they'll surely rain enough lead first into this steel trap vibrating like jackhammers have been turned on it. Are those rounds I hear ripping through the floor? Boy, that would hurt. I think I hear the rear blade get smashed in back. Are those sparks? This bird is shaking like the scariest ride ever, even worse than the time the Ferris wheel stopped 
we at the top in Wingfield next to me swinging our cradle back and forth, but not as terrifying as when this shattering, shuddering, out-of-control beast we're in just stops and drops straight down. Gravity has its clutches on us, and it drops like an elephant falls after instant death, straight down, and we're trapped in the bowels of the elephant as it plows into the earth, into the heart and teeth of the dreaded 324B and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. That is the stream of consciousness um, effect that I used, and your imagination can work overtime in the sky at night. Folks, again, you've been listening to retired Lieutenant Franklin Cox reading from his book, Lullabies for Lieutenant. It is a Military Writers Society of America Civil Silver Award winner. Memoir of a Forward Marine Observer in Vietnam, 1965-1966. Uh, very powerful, sir. Very powerful indeed. Describing the different battles, the different actions that you and, and the men you were around saw. Do you recall, can you briefly tell us, what was the worst battle that you were involved with? Uh, sure, I can tell you the date. February 18, 1966, uh, Foxtrot Company was chosen to be the point of the spear of a major operation called Operation Kings, uh, again, uh, south of Da Nang. Uh, and we, we, uh, we headed out of our base camp around 2 in the afternoon on foot, uh, and our objective for the day was going to be uh, several miles south of us, um, this river. Um, um, we were gone no more than 40 minutes when we had to pull in Malavac helicopters because uh, two brand-new 18-year-old Marines were overcome and had heat stroke and were on the verge of death. Well, uh, it, that alerted our whereabouts to every um, to all, the, uh, all of our enemy, you know, within 20 miles away. So, uh, long story short, after we've gone through through villages uh, uh, and we're starting to get a bunch of sniper fire, all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden, uh, around five in the afternoon, um, um, we're uh, we're we're lined up in three platoons in column: first, second, and third platoon. I'm in the middle platoon with the company commander and the command group. Mortars start raining all around uh, the first platoon, which is in front of me. Uh, at the same time, we start getting automatic machine gun and weapons fire into our ranks from the left tree line. We're going down the middle of a uh, of a field. Uh, from the right tree line, we start getting uh, rocket fire, uh, RPG fire, and uh, AK-47 fire into our third platoon behind me. My radio operator turned to me and said, Mr. Cox... Corporal Barnes has been hit. Well, Corporal Barnes was my scout observer on my Ford Observer team with the 1st Platoon. We split up to give artillery coverage better that way. So he and I jumped up. We started running. We started running down this field. It was a potato field. There were puffs of dirt coming up everywhere all around this field. Uh, and as I got down to um, um, to where the wounded Marines were with the first with the with the first platoon, um, there was my corporal, uh, uh, this 19-year-old wonderful young young Marine who turned and looked at me and said, "Thank God for chicken casserole, Lieutenant." And the, uh, the chicken casserole had deflected most of the uh, shrapnel from a 60 mortar round that exploded behind him. He ended up with this superficial. 
uh, wounds, but the battle carried on over to the next morning, and we had a bunch of Marines killed, and we made it through. Outstanding. Got just a couple of minutes left. I got a couple of things I want to ask you about. I hear a screenplay adaptation has been written about this book, and Her Majesty comes back to play in this. Tell us real briefly about that. Yeah, real briefly. uh, David Karen uh, is um, an an award-winning screenwriter that read the book, loved it, came to me, and wanted to collaborate. We joined together and wrote the screenplay. The screenplay uh, basically... uh, the old woman drives the screenplay uh and um the screenplay has won um it won the grand prize in the story pros international screenplay contest with a thousand entries and it won first place in the um creative world screenwriting contest which had thousands of entries we think it's really good we're excited and the old woman uh plays big parts in this screenplay uh, and uh, and my love for her uh, still exists and is manifested in this screenplay. Folks, the book is Lullabies for Lieutenants, published by McFarland and Company. Author Franklin Cox has been our guest this morning. Real quick, is there anything we've left out that just really needs to be mentioned real quick? No, just uh, I just hope that our country continues to support our troops and our policemen. Uh, and um, and our law enforcement agencies, and I hope that uh, I hope that we all believe that law and order is important. Amen to that. Thank you so much for being here and being a guest on the prologue. We really enjoyed having you. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and we hope that you'll come back sometime. I shall. Thank excellent, you. Excellent, excellent. Listeners, the ball's in your court. I want you to look up Franklin Cox on Amazon or his website and start enjoying this terrific memoir. Uh, for now, I am Doug Dahlgren. For myself and my guest, Franklin Cox, I want to say be good to yourselves and each other. Read a book. If it's not Frank's, maybe it'll be one of mine. And I'll see you all again in just 167 hours. Take care. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.